You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. As well, you can hear these podcasts at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. There are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, which are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of Collected Works, Volume 159, by Rudolf Steiner, 15 lectures entitled The Mystery of Death, translated by Simon Blacksland DeLang. This is Lecture 13, given in Dusseldorf on the 15th of June, 1915, entitled Community Above Us, Christ Within Us. We have gathered here today, my dear friends, primarily in order to celebrate the festival of the inauguration of the branch founded by our dear friend Professor Kramer, who seeks to dedicate its forces to the spiritual and cultural life of the present and future in the manner adopted by our spiritual scientific movement. On such an occasion, it is always good to call to mind the essential significance of our meeting together in individual groups and to ask ourselves why we form working groups and why we focus upon the wealth of spiritual insights that mean so much to us in such groups. In order rightly to answer this question, we must be clear that in a certain sense we make a distinction, even if only in thought, between the work that we do here and the way that we pursue our other work in the world. Those people in our present time who are unwilling to acquaint themselves in more than a rudimentary way with certain more intimate truths concerning the spiritual progress of humanity, might well ask whether we could not engage with spiritual science without gathering together in self-contained groups by simply finding lecturers and enabling people who do not have any particular knowledge of one another to come together quite freely to have access to the spiritual riches of which we speak. We could, of course, also do this, But as long as it is in some way possible for us to establish, in the wider and narrower sense, associations of people who know one another and who come together in a spirit of friendship and brotherliness in these working groups, we want to do this in full consciousness of the attitude of soul that links us with spiritual science. For it is not for nothing that in our circles people meet to focus their attention upon the more intimate part of our spiritual knowledge and make a solemn resolve to be together in brotherly love and harmony. It is not only that there is a certain significance in the way that we relate to one another and how we associate with one another, that we are speaking with kindred spirits, with souls who are consciously connected with us. It is not only that this is so, but something else is also involved. With such associations in individual groups, we are actually establishing something that is intimately connected with the whole conception that we should have of our spiritual movement if we understand it in the deepest sense. Our spiritual movement must enable us all to be fully aware that it does not only have a significance for the existence that the senses are able to encompass, and for the existence that the human intellect that is directed toward outward things can embrace, it must be pervaded with the clarity that our souls are seeking through it in a real genuine connection with the spiritual worlds. 
we must again and again say to ourselves with full consciousness that when we pursue spiritual science, we are, in a certain sense, shifting the focus of our souls to those worlds which are not only inhabited by earthly beings, but which the beings of the higher hierarchies, the beings of invisible worlds, inhabit as their place of existence. In the work that we do, we must be fully aware that we are indeed within these invisible worlds and that our work is of significance for them. Now, the fact is that for the spiritual world, the spiritual work that we undertake when we work together in working groups with people who know one another has a completely different significance than if such work were to be carried out not within such working groups, but outside them and dispersed in various places in the world. Thus the work that we accomplish together in brotherly harmony within our groups has a wholly different significance for the spiritual worlds from work that we might do otherwise. In order to understand this fully, we need to recall something of importance that has featured in a variety of ways in our spiritual scientific work during recent years. Let us recall that the course of our earthly evolution for us human beings has been such that in the post-Atlantean age it was carried, firstly, by that cultural community that we associate with the ancient Indian period. This cultural period was then continued by what, to use an expression that is more or less appropriate, we do not need to enter into the details of this now, we may call the ancient Persian cultural period. Then came the Egypto-Chaldean-Babylonian cultural period, then the Greco-Latin, then our fifth post-Atlantean cultural period. Each such cultural period has in particular to cultivate the culture and spiritual life as is assigned to it, initially with respect to the outward visible world. But at the same time it has to bear within itself, by way of preparation, what is to come in the next cultural period. The first post-Atlantean cultural period, that of ancient India, had to prepare the ancient Persian epoch, the ancient Persian, the Egypto-Chaldean, and so on. And our fifth post-Atlantean cultural must prepare the sixth culture period of the immediate future. I have often said that our spiritual scientific task is to use what we make our own, not only for something that, while being completely right, is not the only thing that matters, namely to acquire spiritual riches for ourselves, for the eternal life of our soul, but to prepare what will constitute the content, the particular outward endeavors of the sixth cultural period. This is how it has been in each of the post-Atlantean cultural periods, and those places where the particular outward aspect for the next cultural period was always prepared were the mystery places. These were those associations of human beings in which something other was cultivated than in the outer world. You will also know that in the case of the first post-Atlantean cultural period, that of ancient India, it was primarily the human etheric body that was cultivated by this ancient Indian culture, while the culture of ancient Persia was mainly concerned with the astral body, that of Egypt and Chaldea with the sentient soul, 
and that of Greece and Rome with the intellectual or mind-soul. Our cultural period cultivates and will bring to its full development that which one calls the consciousness-soul. But preparation must also be made for what in the sixth cultural period will give to outward culture its particular content and character. This sixth cultural period will have many features which will be radically different from the characteristic features of our time. We can emphasize three characteristics which, as we must realize, we should carry in our hearts as our ideals for the sixth post-Atlantean cultural period in preparation for this sixth cultural period. There is at present, lacking in human society, a quality that will exist in the sixth cultural period among those people who may be reckoned as having reached the aim of the sixth cultural period and have not fallen short of it. Thus, among those who in the sixth cultural period have not remained at a mere primitive or barbaric stage. One of the most important characteristics of these inhabitants of the earth in the sixth cultural period, thus those who will be at the peak of culture at that time, will be a certain moral quality. There is at present little evidence of this characteristic amongst mankind. A person today has to be delicately organized if he is to feel pain when, quite apart from his own existence, he has to look upon, observe, or simply see other people in the world who are worse off than he is. To be sure, sensitive natures even today feel sorrow when confronted by the suffering that many people in the world have to bear. But these must be highly sensitive individuals. In the sixth cultural period, those who will be at the height of cultural development will not only have that feeling that we experience today as pain with respect to poverty, suffering, and misery in the world, but such a person in the sixth post-Atlantean cultural period will experience the other's suffering as his own. If he sees a hungry person, he will feel the hunger so acutely right down into his physical organism that this hunger of the other will be unbearable to him. What is being indicated here is that in the sixth cultural period, to a far greater extent than in the fifth, it will be a moral characteristic that the well-being of the individual will be dependent upon the well-being of the whole. So just as now the well-being of a single human limb depends upon the health of the whole body, and if the person as a whole is not healthy, the individual limb will not be in a good shape either. In the sixth cultural period, a common consciousness will embrace the civilized, cultivated people of that time, and the individual will, as does a limb of the whole body, feel the suffering, need, and poverty, or the wealth of the whole, to a far greater degree. This is the first pre-eminently moral trait which will characterize the sixth cultural period. A second fundamental characteristic will be that everything that we refer to today as beliefs and religious convictions will depend to a far, far greater extent upon the individuality of a particular person than is the case today. Spiritual science expresses this by saying that in every sphere of religion in the sixth cultural period, a total freedom of thought will prevail amongst people so that what someone wants to believe and wants to be convinced about, in a religious sense, 
will rest wholly within the power of his own individuality. Religious compulsion, as is still so widespread today, and is in so many different ways a dominant force in various human communities, will no longer be a prevailing element in the part of humanity in the sixth cultural period, which will then be civilized. Everyone will feel that complete freedom of thought in the sphere of religion is a necessary human quality. And the third characteristic will be that people in the sixth cultural period will think that they have real knowledge only if there is a spiritual dimension in it. When they recognize that a spiritual quality pervades the world, and that the human soul must connect itself with it. What people call science today, what, as science, bears a materialistic stamp, will no longer be called science. It will be regarded as an old superstition, to which only those people who have remained behind at the stage of the superseded fifth post-Atlantean cultural period adhere. Today we consider it to be an old superstition, If someone with primitive beliefs thinks that no limb should be separated from his body after his death because he would then be unable to enter the spiritual world as a whole human being. Such a person today still connects the idea of immortality with pure materialism, with the belief that an impression of his entire form must pass into the spiritual world. He therefore thinks materialistically while believing in immortality. And as we know today from spiritual science that the spiritual aspect of our being has to be separated from the body and that only the spiritual element enters the supersensible world, we must therefore regard that materialistic belief in immortality as superstition. Similarly, all materialistic beliefs also in the scientific domain will in the sixth post-Atlantean cultural period be regarded as outmoded superstition. People will purely as a matter of course accept as science only what, as spiritual science indicates, has pneumatology or a spiritual conception as its foundation. You see, the whole purpose of spiritual science is to prepare the qualities that have been specified for the sixth cultural period. We try to cultivate spiritual science in order to overcome materialism, so as to prepare the kind of science that must exist in the sixth cultural period. We establish human communities where there is absolutely no trace of a belief in authority, of a tendency to accept a teaching merely because it emanates from some particular person. We establish human communities in which everything must be based on the soul's free assent to the teachings. We thereby prepare what spiritual science calls freedom of thought. And by joining together in brotherly associations in order to develop spiritual science, we are preparing the kind of culture and civilization which will pervade the sixth post-Atlantean cultural period. But we must look still deeper into the course of human evolution if we want wholly to understand what will be the real concern of our brotherly associations. In the first post-Atlantean cultural period, people cultivated what then came to prevail in the second cultural period, also in communities which had their particular mystery character. That is, in the associations peculiar to the first 
post-Atlantean or ancient Indian cultural period, there was already an endeavor to focus upon the cultivation of the astral body, which was to be the dominant concern of the second epoch. It would take us much too far to describe today what was practiced in these associations peculiar to ancient India, as distinct from what constituted ancient Indian culture itself, in order to prepare the cultural epoch of ancient Persia. But it can be said that when these people of the ancient Indian cultural period came together in order to prepare what needed to be made ready for the second cultural period, they felt this has not yet been achieved. We do not yet have within us what will come to be ours when our souls will have reincarnated in the next cultural period. It, as it were, still hovers over us. And so it was, too. In this first cultural period, that which was only to come down from heaven to the earth in the second was still hovering over human souls, and through the work that people on earth accomplished in intimate associations connected with the mysteries, forces had flowed upward, enabling the spirits of the higher hierarchies to nurture what was then to stream down into the souls of human beings in the second ancient Persian cultural period. One could say that the forces, that having gained greater maturity, descended into the souls who were incarnated in ancient Persian bodies, were like little children in the first epoch. These souls received, up in the spiritual world, the forces from the work of human beings that streamed upward from below in preparation for the next cultural epoch, and through these forces there was nurtured what was then to stream down, and so it must be in every further cultural period. In our cultural period, we need to be aware that it is the consciousness soul that has developed within us through ordinary civilization, through ordinary culture. It is that which began in the 14th, 15th, and 16th centuries to take hold of people as science, as outer materialistic consciousness. And it will have arrived at its full development once the fifth cultural period has run its course. In the sixth cultural period, however, it must be the spirit self that takes hold. The spirit self must be developed in human souls in the way that the consciousness soul is being developed now. And it is the distinctive quality of the spirit self that it presupposes the existence of these three characteristics of which I have spoken, brotherly social life, freedom of thought, and pneumatology. A human community within which the spirit self is developed as the consciousness soul is developed in our souls of the fifth post-Atlantean cultural period through outer culture needs these very characteristics. We may therefore picture to ourselves that through the fact that we meet together in a brotherly way in working groups, what we may conceive of as the child of those forces of the spirit self being nurtured by the beings of the higher hierarchies, hovers invisibly over our work, so that the spirit self can stream down into our souls when they will again be there in the sixth cultural period. We carry out work in our brotherly working groups that streams up to the forces that are being prepared for the spirit self. 
So you see that it is only essentially out of the wisdom imparted by our spiritual science that we are able to understand what we are really doing with respect to the higher spiritual worlds when we gather together in such working groups. And the thought that we are doing this, that we undertake the work that we do in our working groups, not only to benefit ourselves, but in order that it may stream up to spiritual worlds, the thought of this work in connection with the spiritual worlds gives the right consecration to a branch undertaking such work. As we cherish such a thought, we imbue ourselves with the mood of consecration that founds such a working group within our spiritual movement. It is therefore of particular significance that we grasp this fact in its true spiritual sense. We come together in working groups, which in addition to studying spiritual or pneumatological science, in addition to wanting to be based on freedom of thought and having nothing to do with dogma or ideology, imbue their work with brotherly collaboration. What matters is that we really take this idea of community right into our consciousness, that as it were we say to ourselves, apart from the fact that as souls of the present day we belong to the fifth post-Atlantean cultural period and therefore follow a very individual path of development whereby individual personal life is increasingly drawn forth from the life of the community, we must again develop a sense for a higher community that we establish out of free brotherly love in the form of the breath of magic that we breathe in our working groups. The deep significance of West European culture is that the consciousness soul is being sought within the fifth post-Atlantean epoch. It is the task of West European and quite especially of Central European culture that human beings increasingly develop within themselves an individual culture and individual consciousness. This is what matters at present. We can compare this cultural period of ours with that of Greece and Rome. In the Greek cultural period we see it especially clearly. There is still a prevalence of a group soul quality, a quality which is specifically evident in civilized Greeks. A person who lived and was born in Athens felt himself above all to be an Athenian. The sense of community between the city and what belonged to it had a different significance for the human individual than a human community has today. In our time, a person wants to grow out from the community, and that is the right task of the fifth post-Atlantean cultural period. In Rome, a person was first and foremost a Roman citizen. This is what he was primarily. But in the fifth post-Atlantean cultural period, we want above all else to be human individuals, to aspire in our innermost being to our true humanity. What we experience as being so painful today when we see people battling it out with one another on the earth is simply a reflection of the ceaseless striving of the fifth cultural period toward the free development of the universally human. Because of the hostile way in which the various countries and peoples are shutting themselves from one another, all the more strength will need to be developed as a counterweight which above all enables people to be anchored in their true humanity and grow as individuals beyond any form of community. But on the other hand, they must in turn prepare communities based on full consciousness and established on their own independent initiative 
into which they will enter freely in the sixth cultural period. There hovers before us as a high ideal, a form of community that will so encompass the sixth cultural period that civilized human beings will quite naturally meet one another as brothers and sisters. One thing that we know from the many lectures that have been given in recent years is that in the east of Europe a people is living whose particular task will be to bring the elemental forces residing within it to clear manifestation only in the sixth cultural period. We know that the Russian people will have developed the maturity only in the sixth cultural period to bring the forces that are currently present within it in an elemental form to the point where they can make their mark upon the world. Western and Central Europe have the task of bringing to human souls what can be brought through the consciousness soul. This is not what the East is called upon to do. Eastern Europe will have to wait until the spirit self comes down to the earth and is able to pervade the souls of human beings. This has often been mentioned. It can very easily lead to arrogance and supercilious pride, specifically in the East. The height of post-Atlantean culture is being reached already in the fifth cultural period. What is to follow in the sixth and seventh cultural periods will be a descending evolutionary path. Nevertheless, this descending cultural development in the sixth cultural period will be inspired and pervaded by the spirit self. Today, the man of the East, who is called the Russian man by leading representatives of the East themselves, feels instinctively, albeit often in a perverted way, that this is so, even if his consciousness of it is for the most part thoroughly hazy. It is thoroughly characteristic that this expression, the Russian man, occurs so frequently. There is genius in language, as when something of this kind is derived from it and people say, not as they do in the West, the British, the French, and Italian, the German, but the Russian man. Many members of the Russian intelligentsia attach importance to the constant use of the expression, the Russian man. This is deeply rooted in the whole genius of this culture. The term refers to a quality of universal humanity that extends over a community as brotherliness. This is indicated by emphasizing this human aspect in the expression, but it also shows that the full height of what is to be attained in the far future has not been reached, in that the term includes something that is sharply at variance with the noun. The adjectival word Russian nullifies what is expressed in the noun. For when true humanity has been attained, there should be no such adjective that renders this humanness in any, as in any way exclusive. But the idea that a certain conception of community, of brotherliness, must prevail in future, lies at a far, far deeper level at present among members of the Russian intelligentsia. In this respect, the Russian soul already feels that the spirit self is to descend. But it can only do so if there is a human community that is imbued with brotherliness. It can never be disseminated in a community of human beings that is not pervaded by brotherliness. 
For this reason, the Russian intelligentsia, as they call themselves, make the following reproach to Western and also Central Europe. They say, you pay no heed to anything resembling true community life. You are only concerned with individualism. Everyone wants to be someone in his own right. Everyone wants only to be an individual. You take the personal element whereby every human individual feels himself to be a self and individuality to its highest extreme. This is what sounds forth from the East to Central and Western Europe in very many reproaches with respect to barbarism and the like. And those who want to become conscious of what is actually going on say that the whole of Western and Central Europe has already lost all feeling for human connections. Confusing the present with the future, they say that true human connections, where everyone feels himself to be the brother of the other, where each person relates to the other as his little father or little mother, exist only in Russia. So speak the Russian intelligentsia. They therefore say that Western Christianity has not succeeded in developing any true human community. But, so they say, Russians still know what community is. Alexander Herzen brought this to its ultimate conclusion when he said that no one in Western Europe will ever be really happy, however hard one may try in the context of Western European culture and civilization. Humanity will never find contentment there. Only chaos can ever prevail there. The only possible salvation lies in Russia, where people have still not become separate from community, where in their village communities they still have something of the nature of a group-soul quality, which they firmly hold on to. What we call the group-soul, in which animals still wholly live, but from which mankind has gradually been emerging, is revered by the Russian intelligentsia as something great and significant amongst their people. They cannot rise to the thought that the notion of the community of the future should hover as a high ideal that has yet to be realized. They hold firmly to the thought, we are the last people in Europe to retain this. The others have already abandoned this group soul quality, which we have preserved, and we must continue to do so. This kind of group soul life has no place in the future for it is the old group-soul quality. It would only be a luciferic group-soul, one that has remained behind at an earlier stage, whereas the true group-soul that is to be aspired to is that which we seek in our spiritual science. But the extent to which one needs the spirit of community for the descent of the spirit self can be recognized in the urge and longing of Russian people. Just as it is being sought there along a false path, so in our spiritual scientific stream must it be sought on a true path. And we would want to call out to the East precisely what you are to preserve, namely the old Luciferic Aramanic community, is the thing that we must utterly overcome. A community of a Luciferic and Aramanic nature will have just as firm a religious compulsion as the Catholic Church, in its orthodox form, had to exhibit in Russia. This kind of community will not understand what freedom of thought is, and it will least of all be able to rise to the point where complete individuality is nevertheless combined with a social, brotherly life in community. 
It would therefore want to preserve what has remained of a blood brotherhood, of relationships governed purely through blood. A community that is based not upon blood but upon the spirit, on the community of souls, is what must be striven for on the path of spiritual science. This is what we are aspiring toward when we say to ourselves that we must create communities in which the blood no longer has a voice. Blood will, of course, continue to be a significant factor. It will come to expression in family relationships. What must remain will not be eradicated, but something new must emerge. What is significant in the child will be preserved in the forces of old age, but a person needs to develop something new in later life. The factor of blood should not be interpreted as encompassing the great human communities of the future. This is the great error that plays in the East into the bloody events of the present, that a war is broken out under the heading of a community of blood amongst the Slavic peoples. What has just been discussed is indeed entering into the fateful events of our present time, but the true kernel of it all is the instinctive feeling that the spirit self can only appear in a brotherly community. However, it should not be a community of blood, but it must be a community of souls. What will then grow as a community of souls and what should be developed there is something that we are cultivating in its childhood phase in our working groups, in our branches. Whereas what binds Eastern Europe so firmly to the group soul nature, in that, for example, it regards the Slavic group soul as something that it does not want to abandon, but on the contrary wants to view it as the all-encompassing principle underlying the whole development of the state, is what must be overcome. It is hugely symbolic that of the two states from whence the war originated, Russia, together with the whole Slavic world, gives blood-related brotherhood as the reason for the war while Austria, as the opposing force, has thirteen official nationalities in thirteen different languages. The order for mobilization in Austria had to be issued in thirteen languages because thirteen nationalities are represented in Austria Germans, Czechs, Poles, Ruthenians, Romanians, Magyars, Slovaks, Serbs, Croats, Slovenians, among whom there is a distinct Slovenian dialect, Bosnians, Dalmatians, and Italians. Thus there are thirteen different races, if one disregards further minor differentiations, united in Austria. Whether one sees this or not, it shows that Austria consists of a collection of people where community can never be based upon a brotherhood of blood, for this bizarrely formed border contains thirteen different bloodlines. One could say that the most diverse composite state in Europe stands in opposition to the state that most aspires to the group soul or to conformity. But this aspiration to a group soul quality brings much else in its wake, and this leads us to something else that has a significant bearing on our theme today. Yesterday in the public lecture I referred to the great philosopher Soloviev as one of the most eminent figures of all Russia. Soloviev is a truly remarkable thinker, but he is thoroughly Russian, and he is very difficult to understand from a West European point of view. But anthroposophists should become familiar with him, 
Those whose thinking is based on spiritual science should come to understand him at least to a certain extent. I now want to speak from our more intimate standpoint about Soloviev's main central idea. Soloviev is far too much of a philosopher to accept without further ado the idea of a group soul. He has difficulties with it, and he contradicts it on several occasions. But there is one idea that predominates in him, even though not fully consciously, so that one would wish that Soloviev were fully clairvoyant and could foresee what his soul will only see on the earth when it is incarnated in the sixth cultural period. The idea that is from the outset very difficult for the Western European, and of course also for the Central European, to understand and which became the main central idea in Soloviev's mind is the following. We in Western Europe try, among many other things, not least as a means of preparing for the sixth cultural period, to understand death in its significance for life. We try to understand that death is the manifestation of a form of existence, that in death the soul is transformed into a different form of existence. We describe how man lives in his body and what kind of a life he leads between death and a new birth. We endeavor to understand death. We endeavor to overcome death by understanding it, by showing that it is only a semblance, that the soul in truth lives on when it passes through death. It is for us a primal aim that we seek to overcome death through understanding. We are dealing here with one of the points, indeed one of the main points, where the ideas of spiritual science radically differ from the conception that Soloviev, the great Russian thinker, has of this matter. His idea is this. There is evil in the world. It is a part of reality. If we behold evil, wickedness, with our senses, we cannot deny that the world is full of evil. This, says Soloviev, refutes the idea that the world is divine. For when we behold the world with our senses, how can we believe in a divine world, since a divine world cannot be evil? But the senses see evil everywhere, and its most extreme form is death. Because there is death in the world, the world is revealed in all its evil. Death is the ultimate form of evil. This is how Soloviev characterizes the world. He says, and I quote almost verbatim, that you should simply look at the world with your ordinary senses. Just try to understand the world with your ordinary intellect. You can never deny the fact of evil in the world, and it would be absurd to want to understand death. Death is a reality. It makes itself everywhere apparent. Knowledge acquired through the senses can never acknowledge death. It therefore reveals a world of wickedness, a world of evil. Can we believe, asks Soloviev, that this world is divine when it shows us that it is full of evil, when it shows us death wherever we go? We can never believe that this world is divine if it shows us death. For in God there can be no evil, no wickedness, and above all no evil in its ultimate form. In God there can be no death. If, therefore, God were to come into the world, I am repeating what Soloviev says almost word for word, if he were to appear in the world, could we readily believe him to be God? No, we could not so easily believe that he was God. He would first have to prove himself. 
If a being came who claimed to be God, we would not believe him, and he would first have to prove his identity. He would, says Salovia, first have to produce some sort of a document enabling us to know that he is God. Nothing of this kind can be found in the world. Through what is in the world, God cannot prove his identity, for everything that is in the world contradicts the very notion of divinity. By what means, therefore, can he demonstrate who he is? He can do so only if, when he comes into the world, he shows that he has conquered death, that death can have no power over him. We would never believe that Christ is God if he did not prove his identity, and he has done this through his resurrection, by showing that death, the ultimate evil, is not in him. Thus, here we have a consciousness of God based solely upon a real historical resurrection of Christ that proves God to be God. Nothing in the world other than the resurrection enables us to know that there is a God. If Christ had not risen, Soloviev quotes these words of Paul again and again, all our belief would be in vain and everything that we can say about a divine process in the world would also be in vain. Hence, Solovia formulates the following proposition. If we behold the world, we see in it everywhere only wickedness and evil and decay and meaninglessness. If Christ had not been resurrected, the world would be meaningless. Therefore, Christ has risen. Soloviev has said that there may be people who believe that it would not be logical for one to say that had Christ not been resurrected, the world would be meaningless. Therefore, he has risen. But he goes on to say, this is a far better logic than anything that you might say to the contrary. In this strange demand for a document to prove God's divinity, which we find in Soloviev's writings, I have given you a specific instance of the distinctive aspect of thoughts as they exist in the East, of how curiously thoughts accumulate in order to understand the means whereby God directly demonstrates that He is God. How different it is in the West and in Central Europe. What is the aim of our spiritual scientific endeavors? Try to compare and survey everything that we pursue out of spiritual science. What is its aim? What do we want to achieve? We want to recognize from knowledge, so that we can have insight into it, that the world has meaning and significance, that it is not only full of evil and decay. We want to understand directly through knowledge that the world has meaning, and by understanding that the world has meaning, we want to prepare ourselves for experiencing the Christ being. We want to comprehend the living Christ. We want to accept all these things as a gift of Christ. We know that what can be given to us in accordance with the words, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world, is indeed so. We want to accept all that Christ unceasingly promises us, for he speaks not only through the Gospels, but also within our souls. This is what he means by the words, quote, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world, close quote. He can always be found as the living Christ. We want to live in Him, to receive Him into ourselves. Not I, but Christ in me. This is the most significant of Paul's sayings for us. Not I, but Christ in me. Thus through Him we see wherever we may turn, 
there is meaning. Faust wanted to say the same thing when he expressed his whole conception of the world in these words, quote, Spirit sublime, you gave me, gave me all for which I asked. Not unto me in vain did you turn your visage in the fire. Gave me nature's splendor to be mine, power to feel her touch and to enjoy. No cold, amazed encounter do you grant. You teach me in her deepest heart to gaze as dwelling in the bosom of a friend. The ranks of living creatures do you lead before me, teaching me to know my brothers in air and water and the silent glade. And when the storm in forests roars and rages and giant pines in toppling cause their weight to bring their neighbor trees down to the ground and in falling make the mountain shake, then to a sheltering cavern do you lead me, showing me myself, and to my heart deep mysterious wonders are revealed. Close quote from Faust, Part 1, Scene 14, Forest and Cavern. Thus gaining a spiritual understanding of the outer and inner worlds, meaningfully understanding death itself, and realizing that it is the transition from one form of life to another. And in therefore seeking the living Christ, we also follow him through death and through the resurrection. We do not begin from the resurrection, as do those from Eastern Europe. We follow Christ, by whom we are inspired, Christ, whom we receive into our imaginations. We follow Christ until death. We follow him not only by saying ex Deo nascimur, but by saying in Christo morimur. We scrutinize the world and know that the world is the document through which God gives expression to his divinity. In that we experience and try to understand the weaving and working of spiritual realities, we in the West cannot say that we need a document for God to establish his identity if he should come into the world, but we seek God everywhere. We seek God in nature and in the souls of human beings. The fifth post-Atlantean cultural epoch therefore also needs what we cultivate and the brotherly associations of our branches. It needs the conscious cultivation of the spiritual aura nurtured by the higher hierarchies that still hovers over us, which will flow into human souls when they come to live in the sixth cultural period. We do not want to cling to something that is dead, as does the East with respect to the group soul, to an outdated form of community. We want to cultivate the early stages of a living reality, which is community spirit of our branches. We have no wish to look for what speaks from the blood in order to summon together those in whom something in common is addressed by the blood and cultivate some kind of community on this basis. We want to call together people who resolve to be brothers and sisters and to have hovering over them what they want to develop by cultivating spiritual science and by feeling the good spirit of brotherhood hovering over them. This is what we want to receive into ourselves as a dedicatory thought at the inauguration of one of our branches. With such a thought we consecrate a branch when we found it. Community and quickening life. We seek community above us, the living Christ within us, who needs no document, who does not 
first have to be authenticated by the resurrection. Who is worthy of belief because we experience him within ourselves? Community above us, Christ within us. This is what we make our motto, our motto of consecration when we found a branch. Whether two or three or seven or many, many people are gathered in Christ's name, Christ lives in them. And all those who acknowledge Christ as their brother in this sense are themselves sisters and brothers. If we are able to receive such words of consecration and carry out our work with such an attitude, the right spirit of our spiritual scientific movement will hold sway in whatever we do. Even in these difficult times, our spiritual scientific friends from elsewhere have gathered together with those who have founded their branch here. This is always a good practice, for those who work in other branches will thereby also carry the dedicatory thought, the motto of consecration, and they pledge themselves to think constantly of those in a branch who have undertaken to work with one another on behalf of our movement. In this way, the invisible community that we want to establish through the nature of our work will grow and grow. If such an attitude connected with our work becomes more and more widespread, we will do justice to the demands placed upon us by spiritual science with respect to the progress of mankind. And then we may believe that those who guide human progress and human knowledge as the great masters of wisdom will be with us. To the extent that you are working here, in accordance with our spiritual scientific ideals, I know that the high masters who guide our movement from the spiritual worlds will also be in the midst of your work. From this point of view, I call today upon the power, the grace and love of these masters of wisdom who direct and guide the work that we do in brotherly associations in our branches. I call upon the grace, the power and the love of these masters of wisdom who are directly connected with the forces of the higher hierarchies that they may descend upon the work of this branch. May your good spirit, you great masters, and may the good spirit of our spiritual scientific movement be with this branch. May they hold sway in its work. The end of Lecture 13